Jesus, the sommelier of the feast. And you say, John, who or what is a sommelier? The word comes to us from the French language and culture. It simply means a wine steward. A knowledgeable wine professional. An expert in wines, if you will. Most of us have been in situations of trying to choose a bottle of wine in a restaurant or store and didn't know which one would go with this meal. Which one should I buy? Maybe you're buying a gift for an individual. Which one should would be appropriate for this person? I have a friend that I can call in with such questions. His name is Kirby. And he's my sommelier. He knows vineyard owners and winemakers all over the world. You know, it's amazing to me. Some sommeliers, in doing a blind tasting test, you have a bottle of wine here and the, everything about the wine is covered over. You can't see it. He can't read it. He can take a taste of that wine and tell you what the wine is, Merlot, Cabernet, whatever. But he can also tell you the vineyard that it comes from and also tell you the year of the wine. Now, that's as amazing to me. I mean, that's so far beyond anything I could do. It's far beyond me as me playing basketball like LeBron James. I mean, just can't do it. Well, in the scene before us this morning, Jesus becomes a sommelier of a wedding feast. We're going to, we will seek the answers to three questions this morning. What happened in this wonderful story? That's the first question. Second question, what did not happen in this story? And third, why does this most unusual miracle by Jesus take such a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus? First question, what happened in this wedding feast attended by Jesus? In that culture, weddings were extremely significant events. I know they are today, but even more so then. First, there was a betrothal. Something like our engagement, but much more binding. Betrothals were a serious matter. It was, a, it was a legal, actually a legal affair. If obligations were not fulfilled, there could be serious financial consequences for both families. Weddings would involve Families, extended families, like today, but then whole towns, whole communities. Weddings in that culture were not over in a day. The celebration, the parties could go on for a week. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, Jesus was from Nazareth. Cana is a neighboring town. They were neighboring. Nazareth and Cana were neighboring communities, neighboring towns. Mary, his mother, was there. Why was Jesus there? We don't think about him going to such things. Well, this was before he was a household name in all of Israel. 
No, he had done no miracle up to this point. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. So it wasn't that he was invited because this couple wanted an A-lister, wanted this famous rabbi, because he wasn't famous yet, this famous rabbi, this would-be Messiah. It wasn't, wasn't for that reason. He was invited because he was a, fam- a friend of the family. And the scene just before this, we talked about it last week. Immediately before this, he had called Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel? Nathaniel to be his disciple. Later in John, we're told that Cana was Nathaniel's hometown. So he goes from calling Nathaniel to Nathaniel's hometown for a wedding. So Mary, Jesus, and at least some of his disciples were invited guests. That's the context. During this wedding feast or extended party, the host wine supply. Now, think about this. You're there for several days. In the middle of this, this gigantic celebration involving the whole community, the host wine supply was completely depleted. Now, in that day, you didn't have a wine store down the street. You didn't have Kroger's to go to. And this was, this was a serious transgression. It was not just a social embarrassment. Legal act should be, could be taken against the groom who was the host and responsible for the cost of the wedding. Yeah, I said it right. In that day, the groom was responsible for paying for the wedding. Those of you with daughters in the congregation, you may want to say, hey, we want to get back to the biblical times. I've got boys. I've, I've got daughters. I need help here. Mary goes to Jesus. Now remember, she she knows who he is. She knows what God has said about him, about the angel and everything else. She has no idea what he could do. No miracle had been done. But Mary goes to Jesus, always been responsive. Isn't there something you can do? They're out of wine. Now, Jesus' reply at first glance seems rude. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, in our culture today, if we call a wife or a mother woman, well, first we're going to be in bad trouble, especially if we're the husband. Uh, we don't, it's, that's just inappropriate. But in that culture, It had a different meaning. It was a term of endearment. Remember on the cross when Jesus commended Mary to the care of John? What did he say? He said, woman, behold your son, referring to John. So this was not a, he he was not being rude to her. But, But there was also a gentle rebuttal here. What does your concern have to do with me? Why why are you coming to me with this? My hour has not yet come. 
Jesus uses this phrase several times in the, in the Gospel of John. My hour is not yet come. It's usually referring to his crucifixion. He was saying two things here to Mary. And Mary knew, knew it. Because she knew who he was. And you know how you sometimes, your mother or mother-in-law says to you, starts telling you what to do. And you look at her and say, I'm 30 years old, I'm married, and I have two children. What are you saying? Back off. I'm not under your authority. Remember when Jesus was in the temple, young, 11, 12 years old? They were in Jerusalem, going down Jerusalem, pilgrimage. And in that day, they traveled in caravans. They, Mary and Joseph, were headed back. They thought Jesus was out playing with the other children from Nazareth. But they get a day out and there's no Jesus. They turn around and go back to Jerusalem. And he's in the temple talking with the rabbis. And the rabbis are amazed at what he said, even at that young age. And I'm sure they scolded him. And Jesus responded, I must be about my father's business. That's something of what he was saying here. That's first. Mary, I'm not under your authority. I'm under the father's authority. Secondly, he was saying, my hour has not yet come. Mary, you have no idea what my ministry is about. You do not know what's about to happen and where it's going to end. I've come to die on a cross for the sins of this fallen world, Mary. And you're asking me <laughs> to go find some wine. But then Mary utters a great line. By the way, those who use this passage, and there's churches that do, to speak of Mary being an intercessor for Jesus. And this is, by the way, the only time this happens. You've got to find another passage. Because when she tries to be an intercessor, Jesus says, back off. But then Mary utters a great line, a line that I'm going to have framed and put up on the wall. I had not noticed this before this week. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, she's gone to Jesus out of wine. Jesus kind of pushes her back, and then she looks at him. And you, 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 know, you put this in reality. She looks at him like, I know you can do something. And she looks at the servants and says, whatever he says, you do it. What a great caption. Put it on your wall. Whatever Jesus says, do it. We ought to get up every morning saying, this is a day the Lord's brought to be. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it and do whatever he tells us. Now, there were six stone water jars there. Mark that, that they're stone. You need to know that. There's a reason for it. They were used not for wine, 
They weren't the wine holders. They were used for Jewish rites of purification. Now, this wasn't just, you know, this was a huge party. Huge thing was going on. And when people came to the house, it was a religious ceremony. It was a part of their faith. They had to wash. Now, there was a reason for it. They had dust. They didn't have paved roads like we do today. It was dust. Their hands were dirty. And it, there was a purification that took place. The crowd was large. They needed lots of water. The verse says that each pot held, there were six of them, each pot held 20 to 30 gallons. So we'll split the difference. So each pot held 25 gallons. That's a lot of water. 150 gallons of water. Well, just think. When he turned that to wine, he left that groom with 150 gallons of wine. He probably made, Jesus probably made every wedding list in the country, you know, doing that. But why stone pots for purification? Pots, jars in that day were made of mud. They would have been dried mud. But those type jars would, would have put some dirt in whatever liquid was in them. And so that would not be suitable. It was stone jars that were used for purification to keep the water pure. They filled the pots as Jesus commanded. To the brim, it says. Jesus said, draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast would have been probably paid by the groom. Maybe he was just a friend of the groom. But he was to oversee all the celebration. You know, the groom needed to be paying attention to his guest and to, the, to his bride. So they take it to the master of the feast and he tastes it. And he's shocked. This is fine, fine wine. Now, he doesn't know where it comes from. The servants did, but he didn't. That's what happened at the feast in Cana. What did not happen, and you need to hear this, if you've kind of been, you need, you need to know what didn't happen. This is a rare passage. It's one of the few miracles in the Bible that both liberals and conservatives had tried to destroy. The liberals cannot let miracle, the miracles of Jesus stand because they don't believe he was the son of God. They don't believe he was born of a virgin. They believe he was a mere man. A moral teacher, yes. Great teacher, yes. But he wasn't the son of God. And he couldn't do what only God could do. I went to a school training for the ministry that was very, very, very liberal. I heard this every single day. These men trying to destroy all the miracles in the Old Testament and all, certainly all the miracles of Jesus because the miracles pointed toward his deity. Now, they explain away this, mir mir this miracle by saying that the jars had held wine and that the, the, they put the water in it and it colored the wine a little bit and, had, and it, it colored the water a little bit and had a little bit of the flavor of wine. Well, they have two problems. One, the people there, they really have three problems. The people there raved about the taste of the wine. You don't rave about colored water. 
It just doesn't happen. They raved about it. Then they had another problem. It says specifically that those pots were used for purification rites. They contained water. They didn't contain wine. There was no leftover wine in them. They really had three problems. Also, his disciples were blown away by this. They would not have been blown away by colored water, by a little bit of wine in, in, in water. They'd been drinking all their lives. They would not have been in awe of this. And it says at the end, and the disciples believed. This blew them away. Now, that's on the liberal side. The conservatives have raised, with many of us, me included, we were raised in a culture, in a church, that said that drinking wine is a sin. I grew up in a church that taught, you know, you, you, drinking wine is a sin. Therefore, making wine is surely a sin. Since he was the son of God, he could not have made the wine. He just wouldn't have done that. Well, they've got a problem. The Bible teaches that God created wine. We're going to look at a text in just a moment. The Bible teaches that wine was, that God not only made it, but that he saw that was incorporated into the feasts of the Old Testament. Well, their answer to that is that, well, it was only unfermented grape juice. That's all it was. It was just grape juice. And I'm, I must tell you that such a statement is really being dishonest with the Bible and being dishonest with history. The two greatest agricultural business of Israel were what? I mean, anybody in that day knew. Anybody in this nation knew. Olives for olive oil and grapes for wine. You say, well, well they, they planted those grapes to eat. Really? You really believe that? There's not the market. They could make ten times as much money. And the Jewish people knew how to do that. And that's no slur. That's just good business people. They were making wine. They planted vineyards for wine. It wasn't unfermented grape juice because the word for wine, God not only, when, where they use that, he not only commends the wine and says it's good and he gave it for man's good, he also warns them not to drink too much of it. Because you get drunk, and that is a sin. You don't abuse wine. Now, folks, you don't get you don't get drunk off of grape juice. It just doesn't happen. So that's what they do with it. They say Jesus turned the water into grape juice. Well, how does that destroy this? That would still be a miracle. Well, it would be a miracle. But what it does do, and this is what we're coming to right now, we will see that they destroy the powerful meaning and point of this miracle. All right, so what happened in the wedding feast attended by Jesus? We've seen that. What did not happen in this wedding feast attended by Jesus? We've seen that. Thirdly, 
why does this most unusual miracle by Jesus play such a prominent role in John's gospel? This is the most important question about this miracle. Look at verse 11. This, the first of the signs, this, the first of the signs, the first of his miracles, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. John was the only gospel writer, I believe, well, John was the only gospel writer who records this event, that's for sure. It's left out of the other gospels. Remember, John is writing his gospel from a different perspective. He knew what had been written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were written earlier. We've already seen he took a different approach than they did to the birth of Jesus. They talked about all the historical events, the angels and Joseph and Mary, and John doesn't mention any of this. But it wasn't in disagreement. He knew. He knew that that's what they've said. He had heard it himself. That's what John believed. But he said it theologically. He said, and the word became flesh. So he was, he, he was coming at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, from another perspective. And he was probably the only gospel writer that was at this event. This is tied directly to chapter 1. In chapter 1, what happens? He calls some disciples. Remember Andrew and John? And then Peter came along? And then Philip and Nathaniel? I think those five men who were with him in the first chapter were with him at this event. And what does John say? He didn't say, this is the first event that I'm recording in my gospel. He didn't say that. He said, this, the first of his signs. There was no miracle before this. So, he, 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 he wasn't saying there's others before this. I'm just recording this. No. This is the first. Now, maybe you're like me. I had a question for years when I came to this. This was Jesus' first miracle. Why? Why this one? It really seems beneath Jesus. To many, it would seem profane, too worldly. Along this line, I was, I was talking to, to a lady, and she, she was in the church that, that I was serving. And she was adamant, adamant that Christians should not do this. And I had, she was, she was a nice lady. She was a Christian, came to church. And one day when she was on a tear about it, I said, I've got to ask you. I said, what do you do? I've told you this before, but I can't resist it. It's just a good story. I said, what do you do with Jesus at the wedding feast of Canaan? You know that, that he turned water into wine, and she didn't go the grape juice route. Do you know what she said? She said, he shouldn't have done it either. <laughs> you know, and I just, I, I said, do you realize you're telling the Son of God you know, Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, 
what he should do and shouldn't do. So why? It does seem, even to me, no one was sick. No one was dying. This is not a miracle about saving somebody's life. Why? Well, somebody says, I've heard this, you know, he got blindsided by his mother. He's at a wedding. He wasn't expecting this. And, you know, he hadn't started, you know, with the miracles yet. He didn't intend to, but his mother confronts him and he says, oh, well. People, really? The Son of God? Remember in the last chapter, here comes Peter. Oh, you're Peter, son of John. I'm going to change your name to Cephas because you're going to be a rock. Peter says, how does he know me? And then here comes Nathaniel. You're Nathaniel. I saw you out under the fig tree. What? How do you how do you know about that? People, you don't blindside Jesus ever. He already knew he was going to die on a Roman cross at Golgotha. From the foundation of the world, the Holy Trinity planned that this would be the Son of God and Son of Man's first miracle. John calls miracles signs. This was the first of his signs. Semion, sometimes translated sign, sometimes translated miracle. What does a sign do? A sign points us in a direction, points us to something. The signs we've already said over and over and over again for years. Signs point to the deity of Christ. That's why the liberal theologians have to get rid of them. They shout to them that this is God. But it points to something more. For instance, when he stopped the storm that threatened the lives of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, it not only pointed to his deity, it pointed specifically that he had control over all of nature. Well, this first sign pointed to his deity, but there's far more. Turn through scripture, turn through the pages of history. Bread and water is served in meager and austere situations. Isn't that true? Don't have anything else. At least you got water and get some bread. Wine is always, read scripture, it's always served in celebration. Enjoy. Look at Psalm 104, 14 and 15. We could literally spend the rest of the day turning through Scripture and looking at this. I just chose one passage. It's on your Scripture. You cause the grass, he's speaking to God, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's Wine is equated with joy. Wine is equated with the party. We sing one of our favorite hymns at Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
Well, the composer of that hymn didn't write it for Christmas. He really wrote it for Easter, but he wrote it to be sung the year round. And that's what we try to do here. Joy to the world. He is the joy. He is the wine. He is the wine that gladdens the heart of man. He is the wine that gladdens the history of man. He was saying, my first miracle, my first sign, my announcement to the world that I am here will be to make a wine at a wonderful celebration, at a wedding. But it will be remembered through the ages, not for that wedding. It will be remembered through the ages as the first sign, the first miracle of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. What was the very first miracle that he did when he came? He turned water into wine. Folks, I cannot speak of this. It's hard for me to speak about it without tears. It's hard for me to speak about it and not get cold chills. In fact, I already have. It's just laughter. It's just joy. You see, I wasn't taught this as a child. I became a Christian at a very early age, but I wasn't taught this. Not in my teens. And I'm not talking about just about the wine now. I'm talking about a whole theology taught the sovereignty of God about all of life and that there was no part of life that God didn't touch. From playing golf to playing football to studying in a classroom, he's, he's about all of it. He's about strawberries and cream. He made it. Changed everything in my life. Everything. Jesus was saying, I am the sommelier of your feast. I'm the sommelier of your life. Well, we're having the Lord's Supper this morning. And we're not having it because of the second Sunday, because it's not the second Sunday. We're having it because of this passage. Had to. Because we're going to end at the upper room. I couldn't preach this sermon without going to the upper room. Go there now. Don't, don't shut me out and say, okay, we're at the end. We can stop, listen, see what the hymn is. No, listen to me. This is the most important part. We've got to go to the upper room. Go there now. Sit at the table with Jesus. What did he choose to represent his blood? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb of God. The blood shed for forgiveness of sin. He chose why. You can't separate the wine of celebration at Cana from the wine of the upper room. Jesus' first sign, Jesus' first miracle was changing the water of meager existence to the wine of celebration. Why do we drink red grape juice or red wine in communion? It's the color of the blood. We're reminded when we see that, that's blood red. That's the, that's the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't stop being the red wine that celebrates 
We often miss this when we take that communion cup. It's got to be sad. It's got to be sorrowful. Folks, it can't end in sorrow because Jesus has taken away the sin. That's the whole purpose of it. The color of the wine says it all. This is the blood of Christ. But it's also a celebration because after that cross, he's going to come out of the grave. And after he goes to glory, he's coming back. Revels in the glory of communion and forgiveness of sin. It revels in his reign and glory right now. It revels in that he's returning. But it also says one more thing. The wine... The wedding feast in Canaan. The wine in the upper room. There's going to be another wedding feast. It's a wedding feast of the Lamb. And if you know Christ, you're going to be there. And he's the sommelier of that feast. And you're finally going to get to taste his Amen.